Amen. Thank you, Tony. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing in our series in Ephesians, picking up at verse 7, where we left off last week, and we're going to read to verse 16. You'll notice that the first word in verse 7 is the word but. It's a conjunction. Uh, Paul is transitioning his thought from what he's been talking about in verses 1 through 6 to to, uh, his theme here in verses 7 through 16. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, great. If not, it's printed for you in the worship folder you have. It's on the screen behind me. It's also on your screen at home. Let's, let's read together beginning in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then the parenthetical statement. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Would you say with me? The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So here's the thing. The gospel has to be understood, and then it has to be lived. There is gospel doctrine, and then there's gospel community. There's gospel culture. And that is the transition that we've been making, that Paul is making here in this letter that he's written to the Ephesian Christians. In chapters 1 through 3, he's talked about all of this rich gospel doctrine that is the footing for our lives. But in chapter four, he begins to talk about what it looks like to take that gospel that we believe and to begin to live it out, to flesh it out in the way we live with one another. He's transitioning from a mere um, discussion of doctrine to a description of a community of people who together are rooted and grounded in that, that doctrine of grace, who are together rooted and grounded in God's love. And one of the features, and Ray Ortland talked about this last week when he was here with us, one of the features of that kind of people is unity. The gospel brings us together, right? We should be eager to maintain unity. And so he calls us to gentleness and humility and patience because those are gospel fruits. And they are so crucial because those are the character qualities that if we are a people collectively of gentleness and humility and patience with one another, guess what? We will always be a people though we have differences who are at peace with one another. Those things keep the peace, which is why they're so crucial. Okay, but, right, that's the first word here. But, so one feature is unity. There's another feature that is just as important to a gospel community, a a community that is really rooted and grounded in the love of God. There's unity, there's also variety. That got a mmm in the crowd. I I don't know, okay. That landed on somebody. That's good. Right? There's unity and then there's variety. And those two things are always held in tension. There is is the way we're brought together, but there's also the way that we relate to one another. 
the way we make room for one another in our differences. And that is what this particular part of Ephesians 4 is about. How crucial variety is among God's people and how we can learn to appreciate and, and even honor one another in our differences. So here's my question that I want you to ponder. How do you relate to people who are different than you? That is one of the truest tests of how deeply rooted the gospel has become in your life. How do you relate to people who are different than you, who believe different than you, who have a different cultural background or a different family history or different personality or whatever? How do you relate to people who are different than you? Let me ask you, let me ask you two kind of subsidiary questions to that question. And the first is just something that our friend Timo Strawbridge asks all the time. It's one of the most profound, searing questions that I've ever, that I've ever had anybody ask. He says this. He says, do you love being you? Do you love being you? But here's the other thing. Do you love being you? And are you grateful for the strengths and the gifts of others? Do you love being you? Are you excited about the way God's made you? But can you also get to the place where you're actually grateful and you celebrate the strengths and gifts of others without being intimidated or envious or annoyed at the way that they're different than you? Because here's the thing. Unity is not uniformity. In Christianity, community does not trump individuality. It trumps individualism, but that's not the same thing. You don't serve the church by being a cog in the machine. You serve the church by being uniquely you and imaging God in the way that only you can. And that's what this text is about. Our national motto is, anybody know it? E pluribus unum. It's on your currency in your pocket, and it means out of many, one. Out of the many, one, one national identity, out of all of the melting pot of all the things, one. Well, the church's motto is actually the opposite of that. The church's motto would be out of the one, many. Our unity, our one faith, our one baptism, our one God, it makes possible a beautiful variety of personalities and temperaments and cultures and languages and styles and ages, all bound together by God's love in Christ. And there's so many different ways that we could talk about that this morning, but following the text is what we try to do. Paul has a very specific application of this, and it has, and it has to do with spiritual gifts, with the way that we are supernaturally endowed in God saving us and rescuing us from sin and death, where he has supernaturally endowed us with particular talents and strengths and abilities. So that'll be the focus for us this morning. So here is the big idea, okay? The big idea that's gonna kind of float over everything we say, a crucial indication that the gospel is taking root in a church is that the ministry is increasingly being spread out among all of the people. It's not consolidated into a small group of individuals that are doing all the work. But everybody's got a job to do. All the different kinds of talents and strengths are valued and celebrated equally. All the different people in the church are living in the freedom of knowing how they uniquely image God and they give themselves to the things that they're good at and are passionate about, but without any need for recognition or applause or approval because they're not seeking a place of honor. They're not trying to find a, quote, ministry in the church, which is often just a euphemism for a platform. They just want to use their strengths to love and to serve other people quietly, faithfully, 
for God's glory, for the good of the people. That's what this text is about. It's a church that begins to act that way. Wouldn't that be great? I hope this church will be a church like that. So let's look at the text together. Think about spiritual gifts, the body using all of its gifts. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to be reminded of a number of things here. We're going to see the grace of the body using all of its gifts. And we're going to see the goal of the body using all of its gifts. And then there's a threat that we have to be mindful of, a threat to the body becoming like that, all the different parts working together using their gifts. But then ultimately, this leaves us staring at the power, the power of the risen Christ for the body using all of its gifts. So the grace, the goal, the threat, and the power of the very thing Paul's talking about here. Okay, let's walk through the text together first. Let's talk about the grace of it. Because in verse 7, you read, he says, grace, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So we are each graced with gifts. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, if the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you, then you have been graced with a gift. Some are pastors and teachers, but some with other kinds of talents and strengths, which means a couple of things. First, whatever gifts you have, whatever strengths you have, whatever endowments you have, resources you have, they are not yours. They're God's. They don't belong to you. They belong to the church. They come to you on the way to somebody else. God blesses not so that you can be blessed. Can I say that again? God blesses, but he doesn't bless so that you can be blessed. God blesses so that you can be a blessing. He blesses to make you a blessing. So your gifts, your talents, your resources, they are not for your advancement or your glory. And this is the way we use them. We have to confront this. They're not for any of those things. They are given to you for God's glory and the good of the church and the world. Okay? That's the first thing. But secondly, if they're gifts, if they're graces, then there is no comparing yourself to others. Look what it says, verse 7. Grace was giving. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Not according to what you deserve. Not according to how great you are. Here's the reality. Some are given more, some are given less, as God wills, as he sees fit, sheer grace. So, if you are using your gifts to feel superior to other people, or if you feel inferior because somebody else is better at something than you are, then you're doing it wrong. You've lost your gospel footing, see? You're forgetting the grace of it. You're turning the gifts that have been so graciously given into works. But these aren't achievements. They aren't things you put on a resume. You can't boast. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, who makes you different from one another? And what do you have that is not a gift? And if it is a gift, then why do you boast as if it belongs to you? Answer that first question. Who makes you different from one another? Do you make you different from one another? The text says God's grace does that. And so if everything that you have is a gift, then, then there's no room for boasting as if it belongs to you and isn't given to you from God. So the gifts that others have, the gifts that you have are not yours. The gifts that others have, here's what Paul's trying to teach us. And this is a cheesy way. I got some cheesy things this morning. I'm sorry. I try not to be cheesy. But the reality is, is if I'll probably, you'll probably remember it better if it's a little cheesy. So here's the way I would say this to you. And I, I mean, so it's kind of cringy, but anyway, well, that, that, yeah. You can tell, I'm just hesitant. But here's the, the gifts of others. They, according to Paul, complete you. They don't compete with you. Patrick processes all, all emotion through laughter, he told us the other day. So I, I, what, what emotion, we can talk later about what emotion that brought up there. The gifts, the gifts don't, they complete you, they don't compete with you. 
Does that make sense? I want to say it this way, and this might sound strange. It is galactically arrogant. It is galactically arrogant to be intimidated by the strength in somebody else. Because nobody can be good at everything. And if there are things that somebody else is better at than you, then you should rejoice. Because it makes you better. You should not resent that. They're making you better. And the reality is, is turnabout's fair play. There are things, if there are things that others are better at than you, then that means that there are things that you're better at than they are. There are ways that you make them better. But see, it only works if you love being you. And you've committed yourself and you're busying yourself with making your unique contribution. But remember, it's all grace. Nobody gets to feel superior to anybody else. Nobody should be made to feel inferior. Francis Schaeffer said there are no little people and no big people in a true spiritual sense. There are only consecrated or unconsecrated people. So the question is not, am I measuring up? The question is, am I being me? Right? Am I living in the freedom to be my unique self without comparing myself to other people? Because these gifts are graces. And here's what that means. The best among us are still, at the end, unworthy servants. Whatever successes we might have enjoyed, we've still only done our duty. There is no boast. So Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says that God honors what we might consider the lesser gifts above the others. We should too. And here's his words, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members might have the same care for one another. There's no hierarchy among God's people. There are gifts that are more public. There are gifts that are on more display than others. There are gifts that are more behind the scenes. There are those that get less press, but they are indispensable. And if we start honoring the public gifts and neglecting the lesser gifts, we are forgetting the grace of it and we are dishonoring the giver. It is grace, all of it, the grace of the gifts. Secondly, I want you to see not only the grace of the gifts, but also the goal of the gifts so we can be on the right track. And the goal of the, the, goal of the body using all of its gifts is what we have down in verse 12 and then down in verse 16, where it says that God gave apostles and pastors and so forth to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then further down, it talks about the whole body, verse 16, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is properly working, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so what the teaching here is, is that grace is tailored to each individual. In the church, every person has a ministry. And the goal, the goal is each part of the body, each individual person here. And listen, I know the kids are in here. Kids, this, this includes you too. God has given you gifts. We don't, please don't labor under this false narrative that you have to grow up and become an adult before you can be of any impact, you know, you can have any impact in the kingdom. This is not true. Do big, great things for God now. Don't wait on that. Every single one of you is equal footing, supernaturally endowed by God, by the Spirit. And so the goal here is that every person has a ministry. Every part of the body, every person, fully outfitted, fully deployed to do their ministry, both inside and outside the church. That So together, as we work in this way, we all corporately, collectively become more and more like Jesus. That's what it says here. But See, we can, we can have the wrong idea. So let me offer you an analogy. And I've told this story before, but it's been a while, and you've probably forgotten it. And so it's good to, uh, but this is kind of, as you think about the church all working together, this is really the picture that I would, I would like for you to have. My grandfather took up golf in retirement, and uh, he played a few times a week well into his 80s. Uh, and, and so he played a lot of golf. But towards the end, 
uh, when he was in his 80s. He and his golf buddies, uh, they had played together for so long, but they had all aged, and they were, they were about to where they couldn't do it anymore. But the only, the only way they could really do it is they had to work together as a team in order to get through a round of golf. Uh, because my grandfather was nearly deaf. I mean, he was, he was selectively deaf, if you know what I mean by that. Uh, but even as he got older, he had really, really good eyes. And that was good because one of the other men in the foursome, his brother-in-law actually, uh, was almost completely blind. And he was a really, really good golfer. The problem was he, he could hit it a mile, uh, even in his old age, but he would hit it and have no idea where the ball went. So my grandfather would always get behind him and watch where the ball went and he would be his eyes. And then there's a third member of the foursome that suffered from dementia. I'm not making this up. And so <laughs> by the time he would hit his ball, he would get back to the golf cart. He would have completely forgotten that he'd even taken his turn or where the ball landed. And so they had to navigate him around. And I think by the end, it must have taken them six hours to complete a round of golf. But they had a great time. They had a great time. And my point is this. On their own, they would never have made it through a round of golf. But together, working together, each one of them offering their unique strength and skill to compensate for the weakness in somebody else, they could do it. And here's the thing, that's the church, okay? We are not the Avengers. Right, a collection of superheroes. We're all a mess. And alone, no way. But together, each person using their unique set of strengths and skills to compensate for the weaknesses in others, then we've got a shot. They asked Spurgeon, the famous preacher in London in the 19th century, why his ministry was so effective. You know what his response was? It wasn't, I'm a great preacher. They asked him why his ministry was so effective, and he said, it's because my people pray for me. And I like that, because you know what that means? Good preaching is not just the work of the preacher. Beginning in verse 13, we get detail about how all this works. Uh, lots and lots of detail here. It says, Paul's talking, describing this. He says, we, you know, prophets and teachers and so forth, building up saints for the works of ministry. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by everyone of, of, of doctrine. So starting from the bottom of that and working our way back up, you have a picture of spiritual immaturity there. He talks about being tossed to and fro by the waves. It's an image of emotional instability and volatility, an inner life that matches the external circumstances, right? You go through ups and downs, and when life is up, you're up because it's up, and when it's down, you're down because it's down. And we're also told why. And this person is this way because there's no doctrinal footing. There's nothing substantive to stay rooted in place. And so spiritual maturity, then, is first of all a doctrinal approach to spiritual things. It's an intellectual grasp of the truths of Christianity. It's gospel fluency, not just familiarity. Fluency, creating inner resources of joy and peace and so forth that allow for you to live a stable, consistent principal life, not being tossed to and fro, but, but maintaining your footing and staying in place. So look there, you have, you have good theology that leads to spiritual maturity, but then there's a third component. There's also relational and organizational unity. And it's those three conditions, good theology, spiritual maturity, relational and organizational unity. You have a church 
And this is, this is the dream. This is Paul's dream for what churches like ours would look like. A church full of people who possess enough gospel fluency that people are not just being oriented to the gospel during the 30-minute time during the sermon every week, but in all of the other interactions happening all throughout the week. But also, you have a whole church full of people who are relationally whole and possess the emotional, spiritual, personal maturity and the demeanor and the skills to care for people and not just look out for themselves. And then the third piece is, is you have leaders with the spiritual and emotional maturity to create organizational stability for everyone to grow at their own pace and to create a buffer of safety and welcome and grace and all of this. And when those three things are present, when you have good theology and spiritual maturity and organizational unity, then there is, and this is the other cheesy thing, then there's Jesus conformity. Verse 14, we attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus. You know what that means? That means that we, we begin to look like Jesus, but not individually, together. Newsflash. You ready? You are not the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. On your own, don't take this as an insult. You're just an ear or a nose or a pinky finger. Okay? But together, the more we all work together, every part working properly, then the ear and the nose right, and the pinky finger and all the different parts together, together we begin to make a fuller representation of the body of Jesus. And that's the key. And the other thing is, is that's how you measure growth in the church. That's how you measure growth, not the size of the crowd, not the success of ministries. Are we collectively becoming more and more like Jesus? That's the goal. That's what Paul has in mind. It's what Jesus had in mind in so generously giving the church and gifting the church with all of these different gifts. That's the goal. But thirdly, there's a threat. Uh, and the threat to the body using the gifts is what Paul somewhat refers to here, an over-professionalization and over-dependence upon pastors and clergy. And you see that in verses 11 and 12. So ministry, what, what, can, happen in, what can happen is ministry can begin to be consolidated into a small group of people that do all the kingdom work. But Paul clearly says here, look, verse 12, it's an important verse. He says that the pastors are given by Jesus to the church, you know, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, to equip the saints for the works of ministry. Do you know what that means? Pastors don't do the ministry. Their ministry is the people who do the ministry. Does that make sense? If you want a somewhat silly and over-the-top masculine analogy, so I apologize in advance. My favorite parts of the James Bond movies are when James Bond visits with Q. Do you know who Q is? So before he goes out on the mission, he goes to see Q, and Q is the quartermaster. And the quartermaster's job is to outfit the soldier with all the supplies and the resources that he needs for whatever the mission is. Now in the movies, you know, it's all kinds of cool stuff like explosive chewing gum and I don't what what else, like shoes that stick to walls, you know, and luxury cars, of course, those are nice, and, and these sorts of things. But here's the point Paul's making. The people, you, the people are the soldiers, the secret agents. 
The prophets, apostles, pastors, teachers are the quartermasters. They outfit the church with the tools and the resources they need to complete the mission, but they play a background role. That's the word equip. That's what it means to equip. Now contrast that with ministry models that have the pastors out front, the pastor's name on the sign in front of the church. Every social media post is a picture of the pastor. God help us if that ever happened around here. That would be a terrible marketing strategy. It's all about the pastors. It's all about, you know, this. but why? Well, it's because pastors have egos, but let's not be too hard on the pastors. People have egos too. And all of that works together to do this. But instead, what we're told here, look, verse 16, is that the church grows and builds itself up in love when each part is working properly. In other words, it's not the pastor's job to do all the work. It's the pastor's job to make sure all the work is being done by the right people. And that those people have all the gospel tools, the doctrine and the character and the competencies they need to be successful. Because it says right there, the church is built up in love. How's the church grow? Love. My man's got all the right answers this morning. He's doing, he's doing it right. Love. The church grows in love, not marketing, not hype. Love. And love means individual attention. Love is slow. It requires depth and longevity and exclusivity even. One person can't do all of that for a whole church of people. It is unloving for pastors to try, not to mention arrogant. And so the way the church loving one another that way means pastors work themselves out of a job. The more successful they are, the more peripheral they become. The church becomes less and less dependent on them to get ministry done. That's what we're working towards. And that's what I'm all in for too. A friend posted an article this past week from a newspaper in Chattanooga highlighting her son who graduated from Covenant College uh, there. And the article was about integrating faith and work. And uh, my friend's son described how graduating from a Christian college, he lived with a nagging feeling that his life didn't really matter because he wasn't in vocational ministry. He loved pottery. He, lo he just loved making pottery. That was his passion. Uh, but he just could not reconcile those two things. So they quote, they quote him in, in the article saying, I think it took a long time to get over this idea that in order to really be doing God's work, you have to be doing something that looks like preaching and teaching and evangelizing. And the whole article was written to kind of talk about his journey where eventually he learned that pottery making can be kingdom work. Amen? And so can teaching. And so can running a car dealership. And so can doing whatever you do, having your own business, selling insurance, whatever it might be. He had to learn that lesson, and we need to too. Scott Quattro, who's the head of the business school there at Covenant, was quoted in the article saying this, there's nothing more sacred about studying the Bible and going into the pastorate than there is about studying business and going into business or about studying art and opening an art studio. I think that's so helpful. Because before the Protestant Reformation, you know, the only actors in the church were the clergy. The audience was there just to passively watch them perform the liturgy. And in some cases, they didn't even speak the language of the liturgy as it was being performed. And the Reformation was this powerful movement that returned the ministry to the people. So can I just say, let's do everything we can to keep it that way. You with me? All right, good. We're on the same page. That's good. Lastly. But in thinking about all of this, we also need to consider that there's a hint as to the power. The power for the body using all of its gifts is also mentioned here. Everybody has a role. Everybody has something to contribute. And your contribution depends on you believing that the way that you uniquely image God is crucial. And that 
somehow, by God's grace, you grow more and more to the place where you can just love being you and love being offered your unique, you know, your unique offering, your unique contribution without comparing yourself or worrying about whether, you know, who, what's, who's doing what and all that kind of stuff, but just that you be a part of this church and you feel the freedom to just love being you. I, I, I didn't bring it out. I have this flask in my office um, as a part of my personal gospel arsenal, and it's a reminder of this lesson for me. It comes from a children's book. Uh, the Wizard of Wallaby Wallow. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with this at all, but it's the story of a mouse who is tired of being a mouse. He just, he just hates being a mouse. So he goes to the wizard for a spell that would change him into something else. And each spell was in a little bottle with a label on it, and the label described uh, what kind of spell it was. You know, so if it said elephant, then it would turn you into an elephant. Or if it said, you know, zebra, it would turn you into a zebra. So the wizard, uh, but, but there was a problem that there was one bottle. The, the wizard, as the mouse came into his shop, was reorganizing his spells, and there was one bottle that the label had come off, and so it did not have a description. So the wizard gave the spell to the mouse and sent him home, and the mouse went home and began, not knowing what it is that it might turn him into, he began to imagine all the things that he might be, be turned into. And he said, a butterfly. Ah, oh, but, you know, butterflies don't live very long. Or a turtle. Ah, oh, but turtles, you know, are too slow. Maybe a bird. Yeah, but birds eat worms, which made him feel sick to his stomach. And so he goes through this whole thing, right? And he thinks of all the things that he could be besides the, th- you know, he's tired of being a mouse. He wants to be something else. He started to imagine but in the end, he couldn't think of anything the spell might turn him into that he was sure he would enjoy being more than he enjoyed being a mouse. And so he took the spell back to the wizard. But the wizard didn't recognize him at first. He said, you've changed, the wizard. The wizard said to him, and the mouse said, I suppose I have. I was very unhappy. I was a very unhappy mouse before, and now, well, now I'm something different. I'm something else. Right, so what's the lesson? Love being you. Don't waste your time wishing to be something else. Because God loves the you that he's made. Brian Manning said on Judgment Day, God will not ask you, why were you not like? Right? Why were you not like whatever else or whoever else you think you need to be? God will not ask you, why were you not like, fill in the blank. He will ask, why were you not you? So how do you do that? How does that that domino fall in your life? You have to see the truth that Paul claims here. And I'll just read it to you. He quotes from Psalm 68, verse 8, here in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he explains in verse 10, he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all. Okay. Now that, the obvious reference there is to the work of Jesus. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to rescue us from sin and death by his obedient life and his death upon the cross for our sins. And then he ascended back into heaven after being raised from the dead. That's what all that's talking about. Like a conquering hero who would return home from battle with his defeated enemies in tow behind him. It says Jesus returned to heaven after his earthly ministry was done in triumphal procession, having made captivity itself captive. Now, do you understand what that means? It says there that he ascended on high having conquered, and he gave gifts to men, verse 8. Now, that's actually a change from Psalm 68. And the change is the point Paul's trying to make. In the psalm, it describes the ascension, and it says it this way. It says he ascended, and he received gifts. But here it says, look, it says, having conquered, he gave gifts. 
Now here's my question. What conquering hero has ever celebrated his victory over his enemies with generosity? But that is the kind of king that he is. This is what God is like. Jesus returned to heaven in triumph and the first act of his administration was to lavish his people with gifts. That should get some excitement going in the room, okay? I, I just want you, he celebrated by giving gifts. He did not demand to be celebrated himself. He celebrated by giving gifts, not receiving them. And now, if that is what God is like, if God possesses that kind of generous heart, that the way he celebrated his triumph was to be generous to other people, then you don't have to use your strengths to stand out from everybody else and carve out a light for yourself all, 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 all on your own. You can rest for all things in his generosity and love because it doesn't depend upon you. So it can cut out that whole prideful piece there. But here's the other thing. It says Jesus Christ has descended. He left heaven and came to earth. He was obedient to the law. He died as a sacrifice for sins. And then he, he descended into the hell of God forsakenness. And then he was raised. And it says he did all of that. Listen. He did all of that so that he could give the gift of you to the world. The unique, unrepeatable beauty of the self that he is redeeming in you. You are the outcome of his descending and then ascending back into heaven. You are the gift that he is giving. That's what it says. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? Do you believe that? Like, do you really believe that? That your uniqueness is not a liability, that that your mess doesn't disqualify you, but that all of that is this beautiful gift that God intends to give to the world, that you are the gift that he is giving, because that's what it says. So you don't have to be locked up in a prison of your own self-interest. You don't have to be captive to pride or fear or envy. You can be completely free to stop comparing yourself to other, everybody else and to begin to love being you and to acknowledge the strengths of others and feel grateful for the way that they excel in those gifts without being intimidated or feeling threatened or being annoyed because it's not your thing. You can cheer them on. We can start to cheer one another on, right? We cheer one another on because Jesus thinks so highly of what he is making of you. That he descended to the earth and even to hell itself and ascended back into heaven to give you as a gift to the world. That's some awesome, awesome stuff, guys. Isn't it? And if we would begin to believe that, then that whole dynamic Paul's describing here would begin to happen. You know, there are a lot of things that I would never dare do on my own. Uh, I went uh, hiking this past week with a group of guys miles out into the wilderness. I'd never do that alone. There are too many things that can go wrong. It's too dangerous. In fact, if I tried that this time, I'd probably still be out there. Y'all have to come looking for me. It's truth. But together we did it. And that's the point. What Paul's saying here is you should never, you should never try to do Christianity alone. It's too hard. But together, guess what? Together we have a shot. It's what the, it's what the hymnist, uh, William Gatsby, I like this old hymn. Uh, he says it this way. He says, the body, the church, ever stood in Christ their mysterious head. To save them, he shed his own blood, and they from his fullness are fed. A body united indeed, cemented together by love, and richly supplied from its head with blessings from heaven above. Each joint is the care of the Lord, and he will preserve it from hell. 
his aid and his influence afford, and so supply each member well. When creatures to time bid adieu, each part shall appear in its place, and live to eternity too, where Jesus unveileth his face. The arm, the eye, and the breast, or members less comely to sight, shall ever be honored and blessed in glories ineffable light. No schism can ever take place. Tis built and supported by God, a temple of infinite grace, a mansion of immortal love. That is what God is doing. He is building us into a temple of infinite grace. He is making for himself of us a mansion of immortal love that he himself would come and dwell in. Isn't that wonderful? So let's pray that it would be so. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we do ask that you do this great work among us. We give you thanks for the overwhelming generosity that you've shown to us. Lord Jesus, that in your ascension into heaven, you have given gifts to beautify your body. Forgive us. Forgive us for the cosmic pride that we live with that would cause us to, to look at others and not cheer them on, but, but to be resentful and jealous and envious because we feel inferior or to be condescending and dismissive because we feel so superior. What an awful way to steward the image of God in one another. And so I pray you help us this morning to make peace with the way that you've made us and to step in to the freedom of knowing uh, that, um, that you make all things beautiful. And every single person in this room is an unrepeatable an unrepeatable declaration of your wonder and glory and beauty, uh, a, a, uh, a, like a snowflake that is unique all on its own, that, that we each image God in ways that nobody else can. Help us, to, help us to embrace the reality of that and to live into the freedom of it and then to receive and welcome and cheer one another on and celebrate one another, not allowing rivalries, dissensions, whatever might be the case to come in so that we would be a people that would be like a mansion of love that you could come and dwell in. Make it so, we pray, Lord Jesus, for your glory. And we pray it in your name, amen. So think about that line, bind us together, bring shalom, right? Do you understand those two things are connected? It's when God's people are bound together by, his, by the common love, by the common uh, cup, the common bread that we share with one another, that we go and bring shalom. And so this is what God does. He sends us now to the world. And so here's, can we, be the, can we be like this this week as we go into whatever God is sending us into and the unique mission and calling that he's given to every single one of us? Can we cheer one another on this week? Let's cheer one another on. In the grace of our Lord, knowing that there's no competition in this room. There's nothing we have to prove. There's nothing there. We don't have to win. We don't have to, and none of that. We can just cheer one another on in all of the unique ways that God has called us to image him this week. Resting in the promise of this benediction. And so receive these words. And may they be the fuel for us being bound together and being bound together to bring shalom as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.